May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Early in my vocation as a priest, I had actually prepared a sermon on the wrong lesson. And the bishop happened to be in the congregation that day. Um, and when I explained to him what had happened, his response to me was, the lessons are, and he listed them, um, which was my cue um, to find a sermon on those lessons. Um, so you kind of scared me there on that one. We're in a transition time, moving from um, the lessons from the, the RCL to the to the, the lessons that have recently been approved by the College of Bishops with the Anglican Church in North America. <laughs> and I thought maybe that, that there was a um, conflict there in the, in the transmission. Advent marks the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. In Christianity, Advent is the first season of the new year when we prepare our hearts and minds for the arrival of Jesus Christ. There are two aspects to our observance of Advent. The first part of Advent is when we are anticipating the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he has promised before he ascended into heaven. The second focus is on um, Jesus's first advent and our observance of the incarnation. During these final two weeks of advent, we make our final preparations for Christmas, which was Jesus's first incarnation into the world as he became God with us. Today is the third Sunday in Advent. Advent is one of two penitential seasons, the other being Lent. The color of Advent is either purple or serum blue. We use purple in this parish. You'll notice in our Advent wreath that there are three purple candles and one pink one or rose colored candle. The rose colored candle is for this third Sunday in Advent, which is God a Day Sunday. God a Day is the Latin term and it means rejoice. God a Day is the first word of the introit for this day's mass historically in the Western Rite. The particular antiphon that starts with God a day goes like this. God a day in domino semper, iterum dico God a day, which means rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. These familiar words come to us from Philippians chapter 4. They were sung before the praying and after the praying of the psalm on this third Sunday 
in Advent, and they were sung by Gregorian chants. The change in the color from purple to rose is a softening. And so this third Sunday in Advent is sort of a reprieve for us to catch our breath in this otherwise penitential season of preparing for the coming of our Lord. We prepare for the coming of our Lord through self-examination and through penitence. For the past two Sundays, we've been focusing our attention on Jesus' second coming and on getting our lives ready to receive him in that way when he comes to judge the earth. Today marks a shift to the joyous anticipation of the Lord's coming in his first incarnation. The lessons of the day will help us to make preparations. When we're looking forward to something that we anticipate, we do so usually with great excitement. If we're not careful, the excitement can overtake us as we become completely absorbed in the emotion. This period of Advent is very difficult for children, particularly children who understand what happens at Christmas. It's hard to wait. In the epistle lesson from James, James says to us that we are to be patient. When St. Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, he defines that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Patience is considered a Christian virtue. Patience is a sign of spiritual maturity. There's a human tendency among us that when we want something, we want it now. Patience is the capacity to delay the need for immediate gratification of our wants and needs. Here's a rule of thumb about child development. The younger that a child learns to delay the urge for immediate gratification, the more successful that child will be in his or her life. Unfortunately, Americans are not known for patience. Impatience is one of the premier evils of our time and of our culture. As a people, we're not good about waiting for what it is we want. Our impatience is one of the contributing factors to our lack of self-discipline. James says that if you want a sense of what's involved in patience, then look at the suffering endured by the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets learn patience because things happen in life according to kairos, which is God's time, and not according to chronos, which is human time. 
Since we're talking about child development and time, let me say that my friend Dr. George McCoskey has identified two executive functions associated with time. They are sense of time and estimate of time. During the early elementary school years, we teach children to tell time using an analog clock, which is an essential skill in the conceptualization of time. An analog clock is a clock with a face and the numbers in sequence from 1 to 12. Being able to tell time using an analog clock is a foundational skill for learning fractions. If I'm doing an evaluation on a child who has a math problem with fractions, one of the first questions on my lips is, can you tell time using an analog clock? And more often than not, the answer to that, that I get to that is no. I provide psychology as a related service to kids um, who are elementary and high school age. And um, one day this week, I spent one of our sessions teaching a 16-year-old how to tell time on an analog clock. Being able to tell time on an analog clock enables us to imagine the whole concept of quantification and helps us in the development of those two important executive functions, a sense of time and an estimate of time. To too many of our children in our time, time is just one thing after another. And they have no way of organizing that we're conceptualizing the significance of it. And the reason is because we don't make a point of teaching it in our homes. Now, James tells us that if you want to really understand this whole idea of patience in managing time, look to the prophets. John the Baptist was one such prophet. Our gospel lesson examines the faith of John the Baptist. Two themes are addressed in this lesson. The first theme is related to John's appraisal of Jesus. The second is about Jesus' appraisal of John. At the time of this lesson, John had already been incarcerated. You see, John and Jesus were relatives. They likely grew up together. Although we have no record of the nature of their affiliation prior to their respective public ministries. We know that Jesus was instructed in the faith and we knew that his family practiced the Hebrew rituals that included the pilgrimage to the temple when Jesus was 12. I think that it's safe to assume that both John and Jesus were fully instructed in the history of the faith tradition. In Malachi 3, the prophet tells of sending a messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. And the Lord who the people seek will appear at the temple. He will be like a refiner's fire or a fuller's soap. 
So he will clean things up, after which he will draw near to the people in judgment. At least among some, there was the expectation that the Messiah would be a purveyor of judgment. There was probably no single idea of what the Messiah would be that was uniformly accepted among the people of Jesus' day. But there were these various prophecies about it. There was one such messianic prophecy described in the Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17 and 18, which was likely composed in the last century before Christ in Jerusalem, which portrayed the Messiah as a descendant of David who would become a fierce military leader. He was expected to purge Israel of the foreign invaders and would renew Israel as an earthly kingdom that would be formidable in power, just like the glory days of King David. This Messiah would be the ideal Jewish king, unlike the sorry excuses for kings that had peppered Israel's history. This king would primarily be a military and political figure of great power. Is this the notion that John had about who the Messiah would be? That description does not fit the image that Jesus was living out among the people. Which brings us to John's question conveyed to Jesus using John's own disciples as couriers. As I indicated, John had already been incarcerated because his ministry had alienated a number of people with power, a number of civil leaders and religious leaders who didn't like the message that he was proclaiming. We will discover later in Matthew's gospel that Jesus was a strong advocate of visiting people in prison. We don't know whether he visited John in prison. Scripture doesn't tell us. As I indicated, John was imprisoned because of his ministry, which was offensive to people in high places. Whenever you predict the transfer of power and authority from one party or person to another, the prediction tends to aggravate the people who currently possess the power and authority because people who have power and authority usually like having power and authority and are not um, eager to give it up or to sacrifice it to someone else. We've seen that most recently in, in our election from November as there will be a transfer of power in our political system in January. The people who are losing power are not happy about that but then they never are. You see, the powers that be locked John up for his offensive speech. He told them things that they didn't want to hear. So John's now out of the game, as we say. So he sends his disciples to Jesus, and his disciples function as couriers. 
It's important to keep in mind that Jesus is likely surrounded by people when they come to pose their question. This is not a question that was asked in a back room someplace. The question was most likely aired in public. John's disciples posed this question originating from John. Are you the one who is to come or should we be waiting for another? Implicit in the question is an element of doubt or incredulity. Clearly, John had an image of himself as a forerunner. He was paving the way for something much greater than himself. Inasmuch as he was imprisoned, it had to occur to him that perhaps he was coming up on the end of his participation in the game. Would his ministry ultimately by history be validated or invalidated? Would he be vindicated or reproached? Had there been some major kind of misunderstanding that occurred here? Was Jesus really the expected Messiah? John just had to ask the question. He had baptized Jesus, and now it would seem that he was hearing stories about Jesus' ministry that may not have fit the mental image he had of Messiah as a cognitive construct. Had he been wrong about any of this? He had been given a mission. Was his understanding of the mission accurate or distorted? Was Jesus really the one who was to come? Jesus' reply was simple and direct. Go tell John what you hear and see. They had likely been doing that, which is what aroused John's uneasiness in the first place. Jesus added a description of what was occurring through his ministry. And he had this to say. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleaned. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are being given good news. Human needs are being responded to. Jesus is extending mercy, not judgment. Then he adds this little tidbit. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. To many, Jesus was offensive to public sensibilities. To a large degree, because he did not fit the image of the mold that people had in their minds. Their conclusion was that the problem was with Jesus and not with their image of Messiah. Do we become offended by Jesus when he fail, fails to fit the image that we have of him? If John can find a way not to be offended by Jesus and his ministry, he will be blessed. John's disciples hear this, and they are off 
ostensibly to deliver the message. Then Jesus turns to the crowd and asks them, why did you chase after John in the wilderness? What were you hoping to see? Did you go to watch the reeds of grass blowing in the wind? That's doubtful. There is a disguised metaphor here about grass being blown around by changes in the direction of the wind. They didn't get that from John. The message was the message. The way the wind was blowing didn't have anything to do with the content of the message. The message remained the same regardless of external circumstances. It did not change because of changes in the culture then as today. So Jesus raises the question, so were you looking for soft robes when you were pursuing John in the wilderness? Because that description certainly didn't fit John. His camel hair outfit didn't fit that genre of attire in any way, shape, or form. And then the question, were you looking for a prophet? That's it. That's what they were seeking. Jesus then quotes Malachi 3 to the crowd. He proceeds to tell them that there's never been a man born of a woman who is greater than John. John was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. John would be the last prophet of the old way. John would be remembered as a transition prophet between the old and the new kingdoms. As great as John was, and he was great, in the new kingdom, even the least person will be greater than he. Wow, this must be some kingdom. When Jesus came the first time, he came to bring mercy. When he comes the second time, he will be coming to bring judgment. Completing the whole picture. Mercy and judgment together. There are times when we wonder, even now, whether Jesus is who he said he is. We're just like John. In spite of our best efforts to be faithful disciples, we have moments when we ask John's question. We do. When you look around, what do you see and hear? God is in all things. Do you see Jesus in them? Do you see his mercy? Watch. Listen. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, 
rejoice.